The first question that we had here is, how should we answer questions like proof, like the proof of God? Uh, and secondly, why did God make people that would question his existence and make life hard for Christians? Um, so, so how, how do we approach when somebody says, a friend says, God's not real? How, how do we provide a proof of God? Johnny? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and the Bible says that we have to, you know, we have to be ready to answer questions like these. Um, I, I think to start off with, it's useful to know what the person believes. The person that's asking the question, what they believe and what their motivation is in asking it. Because if they're just trying to mock you, if they're just trying to poke fun at you, then, you know, they've no genuine interest in, in the truth. And, and because of that, you'll not really change their mind with proof. I think that's worth saying. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man or the natural person receives not the things of God, their foolishness to them. Neither can they know them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have good answers, because we do. The most logical, scientific, and observable answer to the universe is that God made it. But that's why it helps to know what they believe, because whatever they believe, they they inevitably have to have faith in that. You know, whether that's, and, and probably even more faith than what you will show to believe in what you believe. Because they have to have faith in the scientists that are telling them the stuff. They have to have faith in a big bang that nobody saw and that doesn't make any scientific sense. Right now, according to science, the big bang doesn't make sense. Evolution that's statistically impossible and a world that functions in such a precise and planned way that is completely opposed to the randomness that you're meant to get. But if someone's already decided that God doesn't exist, you'll not prove it to them. But what does happen, and this is something you need to look out for, what does happen is that God's spirit moves people to ask questions. So the, re- the, the fact that they've asked you a question could indicate that God's spirit is moving in their heart and they genuinely want to understand. And those are the people that you can share things with. So you can talk to them about the statistical improbability of life. There's a video on YouTube called Could Life Evolve by Chance? It's from the Creation Museum, and it says the chance of life randomly occurring is one in one times 10 to the power of 780. Now, mathematical statistics, if you know anything about them, they normally cut off at one times 10 to the 50 as anything that's even remotely possible. So even maths says it has to be God. And then you have the fact that no scientist believes that the Big Bang came from nothing. There was something there. There had to be something there, something too small to see or even to quantify, but it had to be there. And every true scientist that looks into this stuff will say there had to be something there. So even the Big Bang people know that, that there had to be something at the start. You just happened to believe it was God. And because it was God, he didn't need a Big Bang. And that's where you can, how you can explain that because God was the thing that was at the start then it didn't have to be a big bang. So there's definitely answers. There's two websites, gotquestions.com and creation.com that are pretty good resources for those kinds of questions. So you might find those useful if if that's what you're looking for. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Johnny, thank you very much for pointing to some good resources as well. Uh, make sure to keep a note of that if, if anybody's looking to look at a little bit more of those questions. Thank you, Johnny. Um, so I, I, I forgot to mention... Uh, if anybody wants to ask a question or wants to, to ask for a little bit more, a little bit further query or whatever, 
don't be afraid to to send a wee message into the group chat uh, into the chat here, or else I pop in my number. And so if you have any questions um, that you don't want to ask uh, out loud uh, or any queries, then text the number, and I'll ask them for you then. If you don't want anybody to know then what question you're asking or for further query. Um, so the next question then is over to Sandy. So, well, there's two questions here for Sandy. It is, they're quite big questions. Like, why did God make people that would question his existence and make life hard for Christians? And secondly, why did God make the world if he knew it would be filled with sin and things that make him unhappy? And then finally, why did God create the devil if he was just going to try and tempt us? Yeah, those are big questions. Um, and, and the first question I, I would ask is, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe that it's inspired word of God? Um, and then if they say yes, we do believe in the Bible, we ask God covers the creation. When you look at creation, uh, and it's simple in Genesis, one and twenty-seven. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, male and female, created them. And twenty-eight says, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And in Genesis one and thirty-one, he said, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And even in one of the sixth day. So God made everything in this earth, and he made it very good. It wasn't just good. It wasn't just all right. It was very good. It was perfect. Okay. So God made everything, um, after his own image and he made it perfect. And then he turned around to them and he gave them one simple rule. And the rule was found in Genesis two. And God commanded man saying of every tree of the garden, I shall freely eat. Um, but of the tree of knowledge of good of evil, I shall not eat of it. For the day that they ate us of their off, they shall surely die. And that was the only rule. They weren't to eat of that tree, but everything else, that was the only rule. In this day and night, we have loads of rules. If you go ahead and drive a car, you're not allowed to drive at a certain speed. You're not allowed to be driving unless you're a certain age. There's all these rules. We've got everything we do, but God gave them one rule to follow, and that was it. And, and <clears throat> then, obviously, they listened to the, the, the fall. They listened to Satan. Uh, any question, and obviously Satan then comes along and he just, he leaves it, he, he leaves him in doubt, do you? But the fruit of the tree, of tree, which is the midst of the garden, God said, we shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, least you die. And the serpent's crafty, and he said, you shall not try, for God knows the day they eat it, the eye shall be open, and I shall see good and bad. And God, at that point, God left them, and man decided to disobey God and follow Satan, which was sin. Now, the problem is here, and obviously, it, it, it's it's quite a, a quite a, well. I think it's quite a diverse subject, and it's quite said. There's why did it happen? And we as Presbyterians, up with Robin and I, uh, different version of Presbyterians, we believe in predestination that God foreordained all things would come to pass. Who would be among the elect, and who would be saved? So God, we believe for ordained that, that they would be, those who are saved are going to be saved, and those who are lost are going to be lost. For Johnny, probably as a Baptist, you will believe in the free will and the choice, and it's quite a deep subject, but I think that God left that, and he knows who is going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Um, 
does, do we follow that so far? Because it's it's quite a complicated um, question. Do, 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 do you think Ross will follow it so far? Follow it so far, yeah. There's quite a lot. It's a big question. Like there, it's very very deep, together. and it's very because um, different denominations have different beliefs on predestination and free will and all that. There, and it gets very complicated, and young people can get very confused with it. Um, I mean, I believe it was the will of God that these things happened, that God left at that. And you wonder, if you actually look in Romans uh, 9 and chapter, chapter 9 and verse 13, um, it, it says about, God says about Jacob and Esau, and he says, um, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And you say to yourself, when you read about Esau, why did God hate him? Was it because he gave away his birthright? Because in the second bit of it, he was deceived out of it. And it was done by Jacob, who was deceiving him. And yet God loved Jacob and, and hated Esau. And, you know, we look at it and we can't see it. But God obviously seen a reason why he loved one and hated the other. And I think God selected, I believe God selected those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be lost. Um, and obviously maybe Johnny will want to come in from a different angle on that subject. Um, then we're talking about we're going about the devil is that, or, or part of it as well. Is that part of my question as well? Why did yeah. God create? Why did God yeah. create the devil if the devil was just going to try and tempt us? Right. Okay. Well, if you believe in the creation that everything was creation, and some people think, oh, maybe angels were bought, was made before the creation. Others believe no, they were created in creation. The angels because it doesn't actually mention them. Uh, specifically in uh, Genesis. But if you look in Exodus 20 and 11, it says, For in six days God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that was in them and rested in the seventh. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. So if you read that God made everything that was in the heaven and the earth, so if you accept that where everybody was made in creation, including the angels saying uh, they were made, uh, created, and Satan uh, was um, was an angel, he was an angel. He was in heaven. Okay. Um, and it says there that just, yep. So the angel was there. So somewhere between, I think you believe that somewhere between creation on Genesis 1 and 31, where he came and he spoke to Eve as Satan. He had fallen. All right. He had fallen and he was a beautiful angel. Uh, but it was pride that caused him to fall. And if you read in Isaiah chapter 14, it covers his fall. And it says in, in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which while weaken the nations? And verse 13, For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars, which I believe is the angels of God. I will sit among Upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights, the clouds, I will be like the most high, which is God, yet shalt thou be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit, verse 15. And actually, Jesus himself talks about it in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, and Jesus said, and he said unto them, that's Jesus, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, so soon as the pride that the battle of, of, of Lucifer 
he was driven out of, of heaven. He was, he went like lightning out of heaven. And unfortunately, and with him, he took about one third of the angels from heaven. So, God created, um, Satan as an angel, um, one of the leading angels. And yet, I believe God knew that he was going to do that. Uh, and again, that's what happened. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, Sandy. It is a very big, que- big, big question to think about. Um, it was concerned, Ross, if you get too deep and too complicated for yeah. people. No, definitely. If anybody is looking like any any further information, anything like, please let us know, and we'll, we'll try and get our we'll get our we'll try our best to point you towards uh, some good resources. We'll ask Sandy and Johnny. And uh, Robin for some good resources and looking at, at, at further some of these topics and questions uh, we just kind of have to do a, a brief run through <laughs> it always feels like tonight um, well, Can I add, add a wee thing yeah, there? Um, you know, Sandy referenced um, you know the, the predestination free will thing, I think there's a helpful there's a helpful thing in the sense that um, Ephesians 2 and 8 which is a really well known um, verse for, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God Faith is a gift, you know, that, that's something that comes from God. And therefore, you know, without faith, we can't please God. And, and so what Sandy's saying there about God making decisions that impact us, that, that's absolutely real. But then there is the free will aspect in the Bible, you know, it talks about coming to Christ. It talks about trusting in him. It talk, you know, there's commands to do that. So in a way that we can't understand, those two things work somehow perfectly together. Um and and you could you could sort of say an answer to that question: Why doesn't God just make everyone accept them? You know that not be, be easier. Um, but then that would remove our choice in everything. You know, it would remove the choice in what you eat, what you wear, you know, who to be friends with. Whereas God's given us all of those choices, which is an amazing gift. But He's also then given us the choice to to, to choose Him and to follow Him, even though we need His faith to be able to do that. So it's it's one of these amazing things that runs perfectly in parallel together and we can't understand how they cross but mm. but they do but uh, yeah i think it's an amazing question yeah. i think i think yeah. things because our human yeah. mind brain just just limited what we can't understand yeah 100 uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah ross i just would add in you know it, it is deep but uh, can i just say that you know um, someone explained it, you know, that those wonderful words in John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth, um, somebody said, are the elect? Those who, whosoever doesn't, are the non-elect? So there, there, there there's, there, there's a, um, when, and the other thing is that the gospel has got to be preached. I think the danger uh, sometimes is, well, if God knows, well, there's no point in evangelism, but it's by the foolishness of preaching. Um, so we don't know who will believe and who won't believe. Therefore, we are commanded to go and to preach and to share the good news of uh, the good news of Jesus. Uh, and as Johnny was saying, uh, I also heard it explained that you know, in the sovereignty of God and in the sovereign mercy, he he he, he calls people to himself. Uh, we can't fully understand. We're ever thankful, uh, but it, but it's also that um, that we need to respond. And somebody described it, uh, and Johnny alluded to it. There, it's like railway lines. There are two of them. Um, you can't have one without the other. If you have one and you don't have the other, the whole thing collapses. So the great danger is that you, that you overemphasize, um, predestination and election. 
uh, and so therefore you don't be involved in evangelism, or you overemphasize that it's our responsibility and nobody gets converted at all and you lose heart. So they're they're like tram lines. You need you need the both of them <clears throat> to be perfect to keep it in perfect harmony. Um, and and it is it is the mystery of godliness. You know the the, the scriptures tell us that we're dead in trespass and trespass and sin. What a dead person can't bring themselves life. They need life. Only God can impart that life. It it is a mystery, um, but it is it. God is sovereign, and 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 He's called the people to Himself. But you, you need to keep those things um, in, in in balance. Um, that that we preach Christ, uh, and and God by His Holy Spirit works in people's hearts, and they respond. But there is that res- there is that response um, as as well that's required. Definitely, there's there's still a responsibility for us to go out and still share the gospel with others, yeah. no matter what. Um, thank you very much for that, guys. Uh, thank you. So the next question we have here is for Robin. Um, so the Bible tells us how it is wrong to change or rewrite its words. And that's at the very end of Revelation. Uh, if you just want to look at that, it's in the last couple of verses. Um, because they are from God. However, the Protestant Bible is arguably a reformation of the Catholic Bible. How is it justified that the Protestant Bible was altered by Martin Luther and no longer allowed to be altered or changed? Martin Luther had a calling from God, so how can we know nobody else will in the future? Three revelations does though revelations does say the Bible mustn't be altered. Is that not part is that part not in the Catholic Bible? So Rob, this is quite a big question. I understand from, from what you've mentioned a little bit already. There's maybe some, some, some brief like misconceptions in this, but can you elaborate a little further on, on where do we get our Bible from and how, how do we know what's in our Bible is, is God's word? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm not sure who asked the question. Um, but there's a little, little bit of misunderstanding, um, in, 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 uh, in the question. Uh, from from the point of view um, that you know John Wycliffe um, was a professor and scholar and a theologian, so so our Bible did not come is not a translation of a Catholic Bible. You know, let, let let's put that to bed. Um, you know, um, at the start, you know, when when Martin Luther um, was arrested, Luther uh, translated the Bible um, himself uh, in 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 the German. Um, so, so it is not, so the question, the question is, uh, is wrong in the sense that the Protestant Bible has come from the Catholic Bible. That, so that, that did not happen. The New Testament, you know, Martin Luther translated, um, in, in 1516, uh, for the first time, uh, from, from the Greek and the Latin into New, uh, into New Testament. So, so Martin Luther did not depend, um, upon, um, uh, the Catholic translation, and then of course, as, as time as time comes on, there's a whole there's a whole raft in there. You've William Tyndale in there. Um, you've John, you've Gothenburg, who the press is named after. Um, you've the whole, you know, Thomas Kramer, uh, the Archbishop, you know, um, was involved with uh, and the Great Bible. There's the Geneva Bible. Then you have you know King Henry the Eighth. Um, you have um, the whole um, the translation of the of the King James Bible. So. So our, the, the Bible that we have today is not a corruption um, of the Catholic Bible. So we can put that to bed um, right away. Um, so we have, uh, so, so the Bible, the, the Bible that we have, it, it's not, it, it's not that. So 
put that. I don't. I don't know where. I don't know whoever asked the question or where you got that. Where, where you come up with that idea? But you you can put that to to one side. That does not. That does not happen. That, that's not not accurate um, uh, at all. And so we now have here the, here the King James um, uh, version. Uh, and and there's there's a website if you if you want to go which I which I looked at to try and um, try and try and make some sense of of the question. Greatsite.com, the world's largest dealer of rare and antique Bibles, but it, it gives you the history of the English the, the English Bible history and it works your whole way through. So it'll it'll talk about John Wycliffe, it'll talk about John Huss, it'll talk about Johann Gutenberg. It'll, it'll just bring you bring you right through. Um, so uh, that. That is where we got our Bible from. So it is not a corruption of, of a Catholic Bible um, at all. Um, and so, and I think by adding to the word or taking away from the word, I, my understanding of that is, you know, Jesus is the word. So if we, if we add anything to the gospel, then that's not, that's not good. Or we take anything away from the gospel. So, um, so we're, we're not adding, we're not adding to the word when, when, when we simply trust in the gospel, trust, trust in Christ and Christ alone. Um, we can't add. It's not Jesus plus anything, or it's or not taking away um, from His Word. So, uh, and and all I would say is, um, irrespective, and, and and we don't want to go in all of it, irrespective of what you read, read the Bible today. You, know, I know some people are very precious about particular translation, and that is fine. I have no issue with that at all. But don't make it divisive, and don't make it something that would create. Uh, Disharmony among you. As long, my my argument has always been: as long as people are reading the Bible, I'm not really overly concerned what translation. As long as they're reading it, let the Holy Spirit do the rest um, with them. But uh, you can be assured that the, the the scriptures that we read are not a corruption um, of a of a Catholic Bible somewhere um, in the past. Uh, and there's a little book by the Good Book Company. You might you might <laughs> uh, you might why uh, why trust the Bible? Uh, it's a small uh, question. A, a series of books that we have, uh, questions Christians ask, and uh, 80 pages, and just gives you reasons why we can trust the Bible um, as the Word of God. Thank you very much for that, Robin. Um, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, the next question we have then is looking a little bit more about the, the life of a Christian. So f- this question is for Sandy. <clears throat> so, Sandy, the question is, what is fasting? Why is it important, and how do you do it? Good question. Do I do it? Maybe not. Look, look at the size of them. Maybe no. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think uh, it's scriptural, um, mm. and it says um, fasting is act, an act of intentionally abstaining from food or a regular a good gift from God to focus on a period of spiritual growth or deepening our relationship with God. So it means it needs to be voluntarily reducing or eliminating or intake of food for a specific time and purpose. That's the reason for it. And if you look in Matthew 6, Jesus said the following um, in 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as hypocrites of a sad countenance be, uh, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear on the men to fast. Fairly I say unto you, they have their reward. 17. But thou, when thy fastest anoint thy head, wash thy face. And 18. That thy appear not to unto men to fast, but unto the Father which is in secret. And thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. 
So it's a thing to be done. Well, you can do it. Sometimes um, we have done it as a church, maybe for a period of time. Um, if you if you able to abstain from food, some people because of maybe health can't do that, or there's a specific reason. But you have a reason for it. A set a set of time to do that and spend time, maybe not eating, spend time with the Lord and prayer and and fasting. And maybe you're doing it for a specific purpose. Maybe you're doing it for maybe to try to outreach to get uh, maybe a mission coming up or a series of meetings that you want the important for the area you live in and you want to go. So you want to speak to them. You want to speak to God. You want to spend time with God to bring the seriousness of the incident to God. Um, or it could be a, an incident for yourself to have yourself more spiritually in line with God. Because sometimes we can be weak. We can um, wander off from God. And I think, this is a time to spend maybe on your own in your own house spending time or your own family spending time together praying for a specific purpose but set not for weeks on end but I would say for a period of time a day or a couple of days whatever you have set a time to do spend time with God and you said part of that is fasting so that's how I would see it and that's my interpretation of it I, I, I probably it's a thing that's probably not done a lot today uh, in, in a lot of Christian circles I would have thought can I, can I, I would say to Sandy you know or to, to all of us you know, I, when, I, when I got all these questions and looked at them I thought you know, how about, you know then I was very relieved last night to discover I didn't have to answer them all which was very happy <laughs> that. You're, but, you're okay I didn't get them all <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I was thinking about the fasting thing and I was thinking, you know, and, and while the Bible talks about food, but I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's important that we, that we fast or we, we give up something that is eating up of our time or perhaps I was thinking, you know, we could fast from social media so we can spend more time with the, with the Bible and with prayer. You know, it's creating that, it is depriving ourselves of something that, that takes up a lot of our time or maybe that we enjoy so we can spend time alone with, Alone with God. So, uh, if we, if we couldn't fast from food, there's no reason why we can't fast from using something else to fast so we can, we can spend that time. Uh, unlike Sandy, I don't know whether I've ever, ever fasted, uh, in, in, in my Christian life, um, at all. But I, I think that, you know, if we can set aside something so we can spend more time with the Lord, uh, in prayer and with His Word, that, that can be no bad thing for any of us. No, I would agree with that, Robin. It could be outside food. It could be, yes, something that we use our time up that we can set aside to spend time with the Lord. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. Can I add a wee quick thing as well? I, I, I got all the questions and again, I, I wasn't entirely sure which ones I was doing until yesterday. So <laughs> there's only one verse came up I thought was really helpful. Um, there's lots of examples of fasting in the Old Testament. Um, it's, I think it's important to say it's not a guaranteed way of getting what you want God to do. Yeah. One, one amazing example, I think, is David when his son died. David fasted for seven days and prayed earnestly to God that his son wouldn't die. And um, the moment his son died, the Lord didn't choose to answer that prayer. The moment his son died, he got up and he ate. And his servants questioned it, and they said, while the child was alive, uh, and he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? 
And yet whenever King Saul died, the people fasted because they mourned for his death. So, so fasting isn't tied to a specific thing. And it's also not a guaranteed way of getting God to give you something. So that, that, I think that's just an important thing to. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, would, I would agree with that, Johnny. Yeah. yeah. But, but, yeah. It, but it helps to bring focus absolutely. And I think that's a yeah. very vital component. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you all. Um, the next question then is directed to Johnny. So should Christians play sport on a Sunday? Yeah. Um, so this is a, a tricky one. Um, and I'm going to give you, well, anyway, I'll, I'll sort of take you through the thinking here and I'll, I'll, I'll the attempt is to do it publicly. Um, but it's tricky because people get very fired up about what Christians should do and shouldn't do on, on Sundays. Um, but with all these things, we have to go to the Bible. I mean, you'll see that every time we've answered a question, we've gone to the Bible for verses and for guidance, and that's where we have to go. And it starts with what Sunday is. Um, some Christians will, will refer to Sunday as the Sabbath and apply Sabbath rules. Not all Sabbath rules, but some Sabbath rules um, set apart from other days because God rested on from creation on the seventh day. Uh, the Ten Commandments, six days work and then one day rest. Uh, and the, the, the children of Israel then on this day, they, they couldn't leave home. They couldn't cook. They couldn't work. They couldn't light a fire. And in Deuteronomy 5.15, we're actually told the reason why the people were given the Sabbath. Uh, it says, and this was God saying, this is why I've given you this. It says, remember you were a servant in Egypt. So, so they were obviously slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought you out by his mighty hand. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep Sabbath. So they only kept it after Egypt. They were only given it after Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't keep the Sabbath. The, the restrictions were there to remind them of what they had been delivered from. And that's really important. These, they, they were given tight restrictions. And that was to remind them of where they were. And yet God brought them out. Now, I wasn't in Egypt and my ancestors weren't in Egypt. But today the Jews will still remember the significance of the seventh day, which is, is the Saturday. And every Saturday they remember the Sabbath. And we also have a day set aside, a day for worship. And I think that's why a lot of these rules have come into churches, because we have a day that's special to us and the Jews had a day that was special to them. But if you look at them carefully in scripture, they're not entirely the same. And after Jesus rose from the dead, the Sabbath still gets mentioned throughout the New Testament. But every time it's in relation to the unsaved Jews. Whereas the Christians met on Sunday. Because every week they remembered his death, the Lord's death and resurrection. They didn't call it Sabbath. They just met. They broke bread. They prayed. And they sang without restrictions. On Sunday. Not the Sabbath. So on that basis, the answer would be yes, you can play sport on Sunday. However, I want to give you four reasons why you shouldn't. Colossians chapter 2 says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to Sabbath. Romans 14 says, one man esteems one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And why judge you, your brother? 
So firstly, it's so important, and this really matters. It's so important to say that there are Christians who feel very strongly before God that Sundays are special and that they should be treated differently. And you also had a lot of the Jews in the early churches who believed the Sabbath was special. Even though they were now Christians, they believed the Sabbath was special and wanted to treat that differently. So any decision that you make must be made in love and respect for those other Christians. That's the first thing. Secondly, we're to obey our parents. Your own persuasions as a Christian don't override the responsibility that you have to your parents. If your mom and dad would have a genuine issue with you playing sport or shopping or being on the Xbox on a Sunday, then don't do it. It's as simple as that. Thirdly, as a believer, you come under the authority and leadership of your church. Now, it's a bit of a gray area if you're not a member of a church. But even if you're attending a church, you should know that what their position is on certain biblical principles. And one of those may be a particular view on a Sunday and on what people should do and are expected to do on a Sunday. And the Bible instructs us to honor our church leaders. So that's the third thing. And lastly, treating every day the same. Although you can perfectly justify that from the Bible, that doesn't give us an opportunity or might not give us an opportunity to show that we put God first. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But if somebody was to watch you through the week, would they know that you honor God? And if they don't, then maybe, and I'm not saying definitely, but maybe not playing sport on a Sunday could be the way that you could show to your friends that you're different and that you honor God by setting time aside that you spend with him and not spend doing the same things you do every other day. So it's a tricky one, but I mean, I've tried to look at it biblically and hopefully if that's helpful to some of you. No, thank you for that, Johnny. There's a, a, a very good point there making to know what your church thinks on it and especially listening to being obedient to your parents and through that as well. Um, the next I, knew, I knew a fellow, um, he was a footballer in Spain, but he was a born again Christian, uh, and he was quite a good footballer, but the, Sp- the Spanish league is played on a Sunday, but he played in a, a five-a-side league, which obviously didn't make him as much money, or, or then, because, uh, as a Christian, he wouldn't play the football on Sunday, although he'd been probably capable of playing in some of the teams, but he chose a lesser. Uh, financial gain so that he could have a, a Sunday off to be a, 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 as he felt that it was right. So, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, the next two questions then are for Robin. Robin, uh, the question here is, is there one certain type of church we should go to? Or maybe uh, how do we decide, um, how, uh, how do we go about deciding where to where to settle down in a church, maybe, is another way of wording that. Or what church to settle down in, or what to look for in a church. Yeah. I think, I think there are a number of things, <laughs> a number of things in here. I think that we should, if we're belonging uh, to church, we, we need to belong to somewhere that, that teaches, that, that holds the Bible to be true and teaches the Bible and has orthodox views, um, of, of scripture, you know, um, so it is a Bible, a Bible based, uh, church. But can I also say, 
Um, if you're looking for the perfect church, you'll not <laughs> find it because there's no such thing this side of eternity. I think it was Spurgeon said that if you find a perfect church, don't join it because once you join it, it'll become imperfect uh, because we're, we're we're not perfect. So there's no no perfect church. And I think the other thing today is, and 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 I think it's quite alarming, is that sometimes people are not almost treating churches as as consumers. So they 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 you know it's like going to Sainsbury's or Tesco's or we'll, we'll go to Little or whatever. So there's a consumerism. So we we decide we're going to choose our church by by preference and I think we need to be careful there's no perfect church um, so if you're looking for church and this is something that I feel quite strongly about I think we should go to a local church I think it's really important to be part of of, of a local church there because that local church will have an impact upon the local community and if you're part of that local church then you can you can be an you can you can impact um, and and be part um, of that community. But I would also say that if you go to church, you need to belong to church. Uh, church isn't a spectator sport. Uh, and I think again today we're, we're living in, in an age where too many people want to go, uh, go to church as spectators. Church is not for spectators. It is for participators. Uh, the, the, the New Testament often speaks of, of church as a body. Uh, and it's a living organism, uh, and therefore we belong to something. So we, we we don't simply go to get out of it. We we go to uh, uh, we go to contribute to it. I think the other thing about being part of a church is get involved uh, in the church. So if you belong to that church, that you are there Sunday morning and Sunday evening, you 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 make sure that you're part. Um, of the prayer ministry of that church, whether that, whether you meet in small groups or whether you meet in the midweek for prayer meeting and Bible study, go there. Doesn't matter what age you are. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, um, your role is to be taking part, um, uh, in the church. Um, and, and sometimes people say, but I get nothing out of it. Completely wrong thing. That, that's, the church is not there for you to get something out of it. You, you are there to give something to it. And so, so often people say they don't get anything out of church. I think we need, and this is something that's lost on many of us, that before the Lord's Day morning, before we head to take part in our churches, how many of us prepare our hearts for worship? How many of us take time just for a few moments to pray that the Lord will help us to understand what's going on, to be part of the fellowship, to be part, to listen to his word. And so we would, we, we will receive, but sometimes we don't get anything out of it because we are, we're so badly prepared. Um, so, yeah, there's there's no perfect church, but if you're looking for church, the, the thing that you need to be looking for is that 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 they hold a you know they they teach the Bible, they they understand the scriptures, they hold the gospel, and they and they preach the gospel. But be part of it, and just don't be um, be involved and and be encouraging, uh, and and that's that that would be that would be my key. Don't don't be don't be uh, a consumer. Uh, be someone who's going to belong and participate because you know the, the scriptures talk about um forsaking not for, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together which is the habit of some the very fact that we are there is a great encouragement to those who are in church leadership but the reverse is also true when the times we can't be bothered going or we can't oh, we'll give it a skip it becomes a real discouragement so when we belong to something we're, we're part of a family 
And as we belong to it, we will encourage or by our absence or by our lack of enthusiasm, we can we can bring discouragement um, to folk as well. Thank you for that, Robin. Robin, next question for you then uh, is, how do you fight discouragement? <laughs> A couple of things um, when I think about this. One, discouragement is real. So, yeah, it, it, it is real and, and it will affect all of us. Um, no matter who we are, whether we're young in the faith, whether we recently come to Christ or whether um, we're old and grey-haired uh, like me, discouragement will come and, and, and they will come. Um, so discouragement um, is real and it's not unusual uh, and it will happen. How do we deal with it? I think it's going back to some of the things that we said earlier on. Um, I think we need to understand that, that, that God is sovereign in, in all things. So perhaps the reason we're discouraged is we, we don't understand what's going on. I think we just, it needs to bring us back to the very place that God um, is sovereign and he knows exactly uh, what is going on. Um, and, you know, when, when Paul, um, writing to, to the Philippians, you know, Paul was imprisoned. You know, how could, what could be much more discouraging than that? Then your heart was filled with the gospel. You want to see uh, the gospel flourish and, and he's imprisoned. Uh, and, and I love his words in, in Philippians chapter one, Philippians one and 12, when he's writing to, to this little church at Philippi, there he is in a, in a Roman prison cell. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So in the midst of it all, he could say, you know what? God is in control here. Um, uh, and what is happening? So even, even if he felt discouraged in his heart, he looked uh, and the Lord, um, he could see God was in, uh, in control. So I think we need, when we feel discouraged and, and maybe things are not going the way that we want them, or maybe sometimes in Christian work, we're, we're not seeing things that are happening the way that we would love. And that's, that's, that's a great thing to have got great, that, that passion. But I think we simply need to come back again and say, you know, Lord, you're sovereign in all this. Um, I, I, I'm trusting, uh, trusting you. And, um, those words, Philippians 112 have been, have been a big help to me. I think the other, the other verse of scripture that has been a real blessing to me, um, I think when I, when I went to work with uh, GBC, somebody said, have you a verse of scripture? Uh, a favorite verse of scripture, uh, you know, how do you pick, how do you pick one verse out of all 66 books? But, um, I keep coming back. I keep coming back to Hebrews 12 and 3. Consider him who endured such, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you will not, when you feel Weary and faint-hearted. What do you do? Consider him. And who is the him there? It's the Lord Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. When you feel discouraged and faint-hearted, consider him. So remember God is sovereign, and set your heart and mind uh, on the Lord Jesus. You may still feel discouraged, but, you know, look look from yourself and look upwards. Look to sovereign God and look to save the Lord Jesus. And, and I just, I just love those words, love those words in Hebrews 12, 3. So you will not grow weary and faint hearted. And when you feel weary and faint hearted, consider Jesus. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, thank you. Um, we're just over halfway through the questions. So, uh, 
Hey, the man. Next- <laughs> uh, the next question then is for Johnny. Yet again, we've had so many big questions tonight, like uh, a, lot, a lot of topics covered. Uh, Johnny, what is biblical humility? Yeah. Um, I, I, and anytime you, you come to humility and you look at the Bible, I think there's only one place you, you can start, really, and that's um, Philippians 2. Um, in Philippians, if you know it, the, the letter, uh, Paul's concerned, clearly, as you read through chapter 1 into chapter 2, he's clearly concerned about the pride of the Philippian Christians. He talks about every man looking out for himself and not on the needs of others. And he points to the Lord Jesus and he says, have the mind of Christ. Um, it says on verse 5, Philippians 2, and he reminds them then what Jesus did. He says, being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And he didn't think it was robbery because he was equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant and the likeness of man. So he went from the form of God to the form of a servant. And he humbled himself even unto death. Now, think about this. This was the example that Paul used when he wanted to teach humility. So that's the standard for humility, which is is incredible. But there are also practical examples. And there's three that I, I, I would go to himself if, whenever I, I'm challenged about my own attitude about things. Um, and particularly these first two. These, these are two that really struck me whenever I, I came across them before. Um, Luke chapter 14, verses 8 to 11, talks about attending a wedding. And I think it's just the Lord. I don't think there was a specific example. I think the Lord's just given a, a parable effectively, but talks about attending a wedding and choosing a seat. Can you imagine going into the church or into the, the hall or whatever and choosing a seat that's right up near the front instead of choosing to slip in at the back? And it asks, in, that, in, that, in Luke chapter 14, it asks, would you not rather presume that you deserve a lesser seat and be asked then later to move up rather than presume that you deserve the higher seat right at the front and then be embarrassingly asked to move back? In other words, you know, and I think it's a great picture. You can sort of imagine this sort of feeling. You could end up in the same seat right in the middle, but imagine being asked to move forward versus being asked to move back in front of everybody. Not presuming you have the right to do something or to say something, even if maybe you do have the right. And I think that's a great uh, picture of humility. The second one is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6. Two Christians that are threatening to take each other to court. It says, brother going to law against brother in front of unbelievers. And that's happened. It happens in churches. And Paul doesn't say that it's not deserved. He doesn't say that a crime hasn't been committed. He says, why do you not rather take the wrong? In other words, for the sake of unity, for the sake of keeping the relationship right between Christians, why not just take it on the chin? Why not just suck it up and move on? That's humility. And then the third one is John the Baptist. Before the Lord Jesus came, John the Baptist had a massive following of people. He basically started a movement. And John was like a... He was like a celebrity with all the people that followed him. And they all followed him. That's, that's who they were following. But John knew his position. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, he says, There cometh one mightier than I am. 
the buckle of whose shoes I am not even worthy to unloose. His job was to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment Jesus appeared, he points and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. That's humility. So those three examples, don't presume that you have the right. Graciously accept being wronged and always deflect attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of those three things are easy. But I think those three are, are brilliant examples of biblical humility. Thank you very much, Johnny, especially for those examples and uh, the references to go look at. I think it's so important for us to remember that, that whenever we have done anything, it's only through, through Christ that we've had that ability to do that through the Spirit. And that's where all the credits to go. Um, Sandy, the next question we have for you here is, how do you know God's plan for your life and stir up your gifts uh, and, and figure out what they are without getting prideful? Um, I think it's something that sometimes, especially whenever we're younger, that we, we don't know where, where our life's going to go or what God's plan is for our life. So how, how do we get clarity on this and how do we know what our gifts, God-given gifts are without being prideful? Well, I, I've looked at it from, from, from a Christian perspective. We should talk to God about the gifts that he's going to give us and uh, what direction that we should travel in. Uh, and obviously, um, I always heard the story about the person who wanted to know from the Bible what, what he should do. And he just lifted the Bible randomly and opened it. And he opened it up uh, about Judas and it said, and he went out and hanged himself. And he said, over oh, the air couldn't do that. So he closed his Bible and opened it again. And the scripture, the verse he looked at says, go there and do likewise. So, I think, you know, the scripture is there, but we have to look at it. We have to pray it about it. So the first thing that I think for, that we should be doing as we talk to God is pray to God. We pray to God that we're looking direction. We, we, we want to know what we want to do for our life, how we can help and how we can serve God. I think then we read our Bible and reading our Bible is, um, reading from where we follow. Maybe you feel, follow a script or reading book and take it from there or like me read I would read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and then I'll start maybe in Matthew and go to Revelation maybe a couple of times and then I'll start at Gen and I just read through the Bible I enjoy it doing it that way and I've done that for a long long time but I think then as the verses will come along I'll show you if you're talking to God praying to God and reading the scripture it'll open up to you follow the commands he puts in your heart and obey the truth, not say, well, that's what the Bible's saying, and that must become wrong, but I really would want to do that, because then what you're doing is just deciding to do your own thing. And I think if you're going to do any, any major decisions, you should be talking to God about it and reading the Bible and praying about it. And I'll probably use an example of one that I had was when, from my job, um, because of the bad area I was working, I had to move, my boss said, move me. But I believed it was there by by the will of God. So I had to take the issue to prayer. I talked to Roberta, my wife. So we brought the prayer. We prayed about it and we read. And eventually I got the scriptures to move and to do that. But that was following God, praying about it, reading the Bible. And and I found in my heart that this is what I was to do. And I think um, as a Christian that God gives everybody a gift for to help and serve him. 
people will make an excuse and say, no, but I can't do that. I, I can't do that. And, and obviously coming from a children's meeting perspective, I'm going to use that as an example. And maybe there's a children's meeting in your church and maybe your gift would only be praying for the leaders of that children's work, praying that children would come in, praying that children would get saved. But you might be a prayer warrior for that part of the work. That might be the gift that God gives to you. And then you should be using it to pray for that. And God would lead you towards that to pray for that. Maybe your gift would be that you have a great knack of talking to people and maybe inviting children into the children's meeting. Maybe speaking to the parents, saying, look, we have a meeting here. It'd be good for the children that you have. Would you bring them in? Maybe that would be your gift of inviting people in. Maybe your gift would be that we have a minibus that goes out to pick up children and you could sit in that minibus because you know with the rules and regulations there has to be so many uh, parents, people cleared to do that but your gift might be be sitting in the minibus but you provide that for your children's meeting, for your church that they know that they've got you to depend on. Maybe it's actually sitting in the, uh, the meeting, just sitting in the meeting and keeping the children from misbehaving, sitting among the boys and girls and getting to know them. Maybe it would be starting off doing choruses or quiz or sword drill memory verse and maybe even marking the role and then eventually maybe even telling the story and doing the children's work we've got there. But God has a, a role for you to do, but you have to pray about them and speak to God about that. Uh, getting prayed, well I think <laughs> the Lord will bring you down, if you think that maybe you get into the children's work and you think you're doing well and you think I'm doing this and the Lord will bring you down because um, you, you have to pray to God and, and I know I was a children's leader for uh, uh, children's work for 40 years and sometimes you struggled with the story and, and you knew the story and you knew the scriptures for it but sometimes and I felt that was God just keeping you in your place, that you had to pray to him and speak to him about that. And you had to spend time with him to bring that and deliver that message to the boys and girls because it's a very important message that you're going to bring to them. And you have to um, you have to be prepared, you have to be prepared in your heart and don't think that you're above anything, that you're just humble and you bring yourself. And, and the Lord, if you do that, the Lord will give you those gifts. He will encourage you and he will use you for his work. And that's how I would say it. But it's important that you have to pray, that you have to read God's word, that you have to follow the commands he puts in your heart, and you have to obey the truth that you find in God's word, whether that's what you wanted or not. Thank you very much. That's Sandy, I think, yeah, what you said. It's so right that everybody has a gift and everybody is to serve in, in their church. Um, and that's it's a very important part of churches doing that. It's already been touched on as, as serving earlier like so um no thank you very much for that so the final couple of questions we have here are surrounding the topic of evangelism so the first two questions we've kind of grouped them together and handed them over to robin uh so the first two questions here are does god want us to be friends with non-christians and how can you pray for your non-christian unsaved friends yeah i think the uh very simple answer to the question one is yes. <laughs> so, uh, because how, you know, the, the Bible calls us to be salt and light. I think there's a danger, um, that as believers and, and it's great to fellowship with one another and, and have Christian friends and that is really, really important. It's really important. But if we become entrenched in our own silo, how are we going to reach out? How are we going to influence others? So I think, yes, it is important that we have, we have, uh, non, 
uh, Christian friends so we can be an influence, so we can be a witness, um, and they can see um, our lifestyle. But I think we need to be careful. Um, um, but I think, yes, yeah, we should have non, non-Christian friends. Um, I think it would be, um, how, how can we, how can, you know, Paul talks about, doesn't he, you know, how, how, how can they hear with, unless someone goes and, uh, and speaks to them? And so, yeah, and I think that is one of the, um, I think there's been surveys done, um, on, on occasions and the number of Christians who don't have a non-Christian friends. If you, you know, if you're running, um, having a mission somewhere or, you know, uh, running Christian Explored and you want to invite a non-Christian friend and you've, you know, some people say, but I don't have no, any non-Christian friends. It becomes really, really difficult. So I think we, yes, we do need to have a non-Christian friend. Um, and, 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 be, and be a friend to them and so, so that they can see that being a Christian and being a Christian friend is different uh, to the other friendships that they have. So I think that's really, really important. Um, about praying. I think, first of all, it's important to pray for uh, your non-Christian friends. I think that's really, really, really important um, that we do pray for them. It's been mentioned this evening um, already in a couple of occasions that you know, the God of this world that blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. So we need to be praying that God by his Holy Spirit will open their eyes. We can't do that. Um, I think, you know, in, in all of the apologetics, we can convince people we can do, but we cannot convert people. We cannot cause people. We, we can't, um, stir faith up. So we need to be praying. We need to, you know, it comes back to that humility again. It's beyond us. So we need to be praying, Lord, we want, will you open their eyes that they might see? that they might come to an understanding and a knowledge of the truth. I think the other way that we pray for unconverted friends is that we need to pray for opportunities uh, that, that we can witness to them. That So perhaps you know, each day that we do pray for them, that, that we simply ask and pray that um, that God will give us an opportunity that day to, to say something. Um, um, pray too that our lives will be a witness um, and a testimony uh, to them. So as we pray for them, we're praying for ourselves. Lord, we, we want these people to come to knowledge of the truth, but may they see something of Jesus uh, in me. Um, we need to be praying for wisdom um, to know what to speak and what to say. Um, you know, uh, when, when we have a burden for someone who's lost, um, the, the danger is sometimes that we want to um, always be preaching at them and, and that can that can have a, a detrimental effect so we need to be praying for wisdom as to know you know and it may simply be a little word it just may be something kind that we do it may be um just you know it, we may get an opportunity but we need to be very wise what we say and we need to be very wise what we don't say but yes be, you know to pray definitely keep them on keep, pray pray that god will open their eyes Pray that we will, our, our, our lifestyle will show them that there's a difference in being a follower of Jesus so that they can see that and pray for the wisdom to know what to say and what not to say. Thank you very much for that, Robin. Thank you. Uh, Sandy, the next question is for you. The question is, if you have a friend who professed faith previously but is now seemingly pushing away all Christian influences in their lives and isolating themselves, uh, beyond prayer, what can you do? Good question, Ross. Um, the, the, the first question, or the first thing I would say, ask was, were they really saved in the first place? 
Um, they professed faith, but were they genuinely saved? And I think if you look at Matthew chapter 7, 16, it says, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs from thistles? Uh, and, and in verse 20, it says, wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Right. So uh, if you profess faith, you should see a, a growth, a spiritual growth. Um, but if there's no spiritual growth and they're pushing your way, um, were they genuinely saved uh, at the start? Um, and God speaks about backsliding um, and he, he speaks about then actually in Jeremiah 3, 11 to 14, he talks about the, the backsliding of Israel. Uh, uh, and Judah, he speaks from 11 to 14 about the backsliding of the, 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 the land of Israel. And then if you look, and this, this one really, really spoke to me. It actually convicted me in Ezekiel 3, um, 17 and 21. Um, and it says in verse 17, son of man, I've made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. 18, and when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest them not warning, nor speaketh to warn the wicked of his wicked way, and save his life, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, and his blood I look for thy hand. And yet, if they warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in the iniquity, and his iniquity that I shall do, but thou shalt deliver his soul. And 20, and again, a righteous man doth turn unto his righteousness but iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, what I have he hath done, shall not be remembered, and his blood I require of thee. Nevertheless, if, if they warn the righteous, righteous man, and his righteous sin, and the righteous sin not, and he and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because they have warned him, and they delivered his soul. Verse 21. And that really spoke to me, number one, about speaking to unsaved people, but also speaking to people who have professed faith and going back. It just really spoke to me about it. Uh, um, there's people who will make a profession or, or say they could save, but there's no fruit from them. And, and you have to question whether they're genuinely saved. There's others who were saved, but have backslidden uh, and, and, even before you speak to them, um, I would pray. It says about prayer. Prayer is the most important thing you can do for them, both the one that you're not sure is genuinely saved and the one that you do believe is saved but is backslidden. And even before you speak to them, you need to pray about this matter. Uh, sometimes if you're preaching to them, it'll actually drive them away. You know, it'll, it'll make them worse. So it's it's how you speak to them, the quiet word. To both parties, the one that, you believe is genuine, the one you believe may not be. You need to speak to them. You need to um, be tactful as you speak to them. Um, sometimes there's people as Christians and they go places uh, they shouldn't because it's fashionable, like bars, etc., nightclubs. Um, and then the, the, you see them going to distract and you try to distract them. And I've seen... Um, Christians saying, well, I'm going to go along with them because I want to try to get them back. But very often the Christians themselves are drawn into the world rather than bringing the people out of it. So I think you have to be careful what you do. Um, always remember your testimony. Talk to your friend. Talk to them. I, in my job, 
are, are in places where Christians shouldn't be doing my job. And I have, believe it or not, come across Christians who have not been living the Christian life. And I have had the opportunity from a job to speak to them, which sprightly because I know where they're starting. And you could see them, the dread me coming over to speak to them because they know what they've done is wrong. But sometimes just a quiet word and speaking to them will help them. Um, you know, I'm sort of driving in here even for Christians consuming alcohol and stuff like that there because it's cool to do it. But I always remember a story. Uh, my wife and I were invited to a wedding party and I was fortunate enough that I had a work and couldn't go. But Roberta was there and there was a group at the bar drinking and all. And she was sitting at the table with even some relatives. And somebody said, who's that there? And one of the relatives who's not saved and doesn't profess and said, no, that's the Christians from that church. Uh, so their testimony and their witness was let down because that's what he, that's how he's seen them, you know? So you have to you take your stand as a Christian. You can't go down into what they're doing, but you think you have to pray for them. You have to talk to them. You have to, by your actions, not go to the places of the end, say, oh, come on around to this club. It's good. There's nothing wrong with just sitting and listening to music, but you're coming down to their standards and they're drawing in because that's how Satan works with you, the week in you. Um, so you'd say, no, I'd rather not go. I'm not going there, but I'll pray for you. Talk to them. I don't think you should ignore them. I don't think you should walk away from your friends. You should come around and see them do things, but don't, do not drop your standards to what they're doing at this time. Um, because Christ and the devil will have you drawn in as well. And that's why I think, but prayer is the main thing that you have to pray for them and your own actions, how you live your life, because they'll be judging you. And as a Christian, you're in a pedestal because people will, that's why I was saying about the bar and stuff, because people will look at you and people may not say nothing right away, but they'll make comment about it and note everything that you do that they believe is wrong, that they will look at it and then they'll quote you on it or quote you to somebody else that well he says he's a Christian or she says he's a Christian and they do A, B and C so you're there you're you're a witness for God for the Lord and you have to be very firm stand on it and you have to pray for your friends who are backslidden and we all have friends who are backslidden or whatever but we need to pray for them talk to them encourage them don't ignore them but don't drop your standards to theirs to try and get them back because it never works no, thank you very much for that, uh, Sandy. So, yeah, it's important, to, especially important to, yeah, to what you mentioned there, not dropping your standards and going into places to, just to be with them or to to to, to try and, and protect them for for our witness. Uh, but you have to still be their friend, still uh, spend time with them, assure them that you still care and love for them as Christ does through your actions. Well, thank you. Um, the final question we have now is for Johnny. Uh, Johnny, if you're saved once when you were younger, but then seem to fade away from God and then come back again. So, uh, as Sandy's alluded to already, uh, you, you, you showed fruits, um, and then you faded away from God and you've come back again. Do you have to ask for forgiveness again? Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of, a lot of people struggle with this. Um, but actually, from scripture, it's not a it's not a hard question to answer in many ways. Um, and it does. Uh, Ross is right; ties in with the previous question a little bit. Um, so, firstly, the sort of I mean, being saved itself 
um, knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you are in the family of God. I mean, that's the that's the utmost priority. But if you are saved young and if you're genuinely saved, um, and and the fruits aspect is so important. But in in just answering this question, when we come back, do we have to ask for forgiveness? What happens in between doesn't matter in in that sense. Um, John 10 says, I've given my sheep eternal life and they'll never perish. No man can pluck them out of my hand. Romans 8 says, who can separate us from the love of God? And then it's followed by a whole list of things that can't separate us from the love of God. Philippians 1 says, he that began a good work in you will finish it. First Peter 1, we are kept by the power of God. If you're saved once, you're saved forever. And that's really important. Um, and that's right throughout the Bible. You, you can see that that explained very clearly, particularly in the New Testament. Now, this touches a wee bit on what Sandy was saying. I have a cousin who told me she got saved a couple of years back. And a few months later, I was talking to her. And just the way we were talking, it was so clear to me. And, and I, I was fully, I was excited for her that she was saved. But it was so clear to me whenever we talked that she wasn't. You know, she, she just had no understanding of salvation or what salvation was. And it wasn't, it wasn't that she didn't understand sort of biblical terms and doctrines or whatever. She just had no understanding of what it meant to have her sins forgiven. And, and so I, I, I knew she couldn't be a genuine Christian because that, that, you know, like, and, and the contrast I can make with that is with my son, Daniel. Um, Daniel got saved when he was four. And Sharon and I, as parents, we weren't sure. And, and you're sort of thinking, oh, how do we know if he's done it? How do we know if he even understands enough, you know, to be able to be saved? But see, as we talked to him in the weeks after we knew he got saved, or, or he'd said he had, it was completely clear to us that, that in his own simple way, he had a full understanding of what had happened. And that was enough for us. And the crucial thing is that at some point you've depended on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've you've come to him in repentance and believed that his death on the cross has saved you from your sin. Now, if you're sitting here right now and if you doubt that that's what you believe, then come to the Lord Jesus now and trust him. But if you have done that at any point, and then fade away. And, and the important thing here is to say that we all fade away. Like, I, I don't, I, I think I've yet to meet a Christian that has managed to keep some steady line all the way through. We all fade away, some to more of an extent than others. But even if you fade away, you're still in the family of God. And that's really important. And like any family, you're legally bound to that family. So it doesn't matter if you leave home. It doesn't matter if you burn all your bridges with your current family. It doesn't matter if you don't communicate them, with them for 20 years. They're still your family. But say you do cause offense to them and say you do wander off from them for 20 years and people have done it 30 years, 40 years and then come back. To go back to the original question, do you need to ask forgiveness? Well, of course you do. You need to ask forgiveness to the family. Now, in all that time, you never stop being part of the family. 
but you still owe them an apology for wandering off. And it's the same with God. God wants us to ask forgiveness. But that's not because we stop being part of his family and we want to be bought back in again. Because we never stop being saved. That, that just doesn't, doesn't happen. And the Bible's really clear on that. And I think, I think the, the, the best place to understand that, I think, is in the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, which I'm sure many of you, you know, it's, it's in Luke 15. And the prodigal son goes off and he goes away from his dad and from his brother and he wastes the inheritance, the, the money, the gift that he's been given. And he wastes it and he comes back completely ashamed and he has it all rehearsed in his head. And he says, I'm going to say to my father, I don't deserve to be your son. Make me as one of your servants. But as he gets near to the house, his dad spots him. And and it seems clear from the language that's used that his dad has been watching every single day to see if he's coming back. And his dad runs to him and he puts his arms around him and he puts the best clothes on him and he throws him a party. That's what it's like whenever you come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you never stop being part of the family and you never stop being his son or his daughter. And he's always looking, constantly looking out for you to come back so he can throw his arms around you and welcome you back into the family. And I think that's class. I think that's... Such a comforting thing. Obviously, we should try and, and with the Spirit's help, not wander away. But if we do and we're genuinely saved, we will never be cut off from the family of God. And, and I think that's incredible. Father, we, we bless you and we praise you this evening for the opportunity to come together to worship you, the living and true God. We approach you through your son, the Lord Jesus. Um, and we thank you for the 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 hope that there is in, in coming to you to know that when we draw near, uh, you draw near to us. Uh, we thank you for the, the hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, we thank you, God, for, for the joy and the hope that there is in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, and we realize that day by day that we need, we need to depend upon you, for without you we can do nothing. Uh, we've been reminded, O oh God, of from your word this evening. And so we pray that day by day that we would be more Christ-like, uh, that we would show Christ, that we would be Christ, uh, and that we would um, seek to endeavor to live for Jesus in, 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 a, in a way that honors and pleases him. We thank you tonight for the opportunity to fellowship together. And we thank you for what unites us this evening. Um, we thank you for the, the love of Christ. And we just bless you uh, for that great love, the love that will not let us go when we rest our weary soul on thee. We pray for each person this evening, each home that is represented, each young person. And we pray for them where the, the situation that they find themselves in, at home, in school, in recreation. It's not easy in these days to live for Jesus. We pray that you give them wisdom and grace um, as they seek to live for you uh, and that their lives um, among their friends will will point uh, to the Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the studer. I want to thank you, God, for the influence it has had on so many lives over so many years. And we thank you indeed that it continues to be a blessing and encouragement to people uh, in these days. So thank you for this evening. Thank you for the fellowship that we've enjoyed together. And as we separate, and we don't need to separate to go to homes because we're already there. 
But Lord, may we know that you will ever watch over us and keep your hand upon us until Jesus comes and then forevermore. Amen.